Lord, we uh, thank you for this passage. We thank you for this um, chapter in Romans that um, really turns a corner in your word and in Romans. Um, it's encouraging and enlightening. And we thank you for Maureen and all the time that she's put into preparing. We pray for her that you would calm her heart and give her a good focus as she speaks to us about your spirit and its work in our lives. Use it in our hearts and bless our small group time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pat. I don't want it to get lost in the folds. It's higher. It's higher. How's that? <clears throat> Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Higher. Higher? Is that good? Okay. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, I'm happy to be here in this first part of chapter eight. We're doing verses one through 17. And after many chapters of focusing on sin and some heavy material, uh, the first half of chapter eight and chapter eight has good news. So last week we saw, um, we heard Sarah conclude with Paul's words in utter frustration about what a wretched man he was and who can save him from this body of sin. But he ended with thanksgiving and hope in Jesus. So as we begin, we see the word therefore, and Paul is actually reaching back to the entire book of Romans to this point for us to grasp the truth and depth of all of God's truths. And there are two things going on in this passage, the wonderful news in verse one, and the theme of the rest of the passage is the work of the Holy Spirit. Chapter eight celebrates life in the spirit. And I, I really do want to celebrate that. And I, I hope <clears throat> as I go on, excuse me, <clears throat> As I go on, the, um, the power will be emphasized. <clears throat> so sorry. I'd like to focus initially on this all-important verse 1. Listen to the ways it has been described. It's been called a great truth, tremendous, a theological treasure chest, an arresting and gripping statement, the central foundational message of God to the world the most beautiful and treasured good news. In fact, the whole book of Romans has been called the cathedral of the Christian faith. And what is this wonderful message? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's think about that word condemnation. It comes from a strong Greek word, that means death sentence or judgment upon a guilty person, a punishment or penalty. Now hear this, there is no death sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we really ponder this enough and understand the significance of it? Of course, we all will die, but the death sentence we are escaping is eternal death. If we were never under condemnation, this verse would mean nothing to us. Or for those who have no allegiance to God or faith, 
it, it means it holds no meaning. But we know we were previously under the wrath of God, under his death sentence. That is why this is the greatest news we could ever know. This is amazing grace. There could be a few responses to Romans 8 among Christians, especially longtime Christians. One might be that condemnation could be diminished or minimized in our minds, considering it one of the many aspects of Christian life. Yeah, I'm, I'm forgiven. I, I know I'm not condemned. A little casual. Or it may seem so severe a term that we consider it just for those big S sins. Or we may think God's forgiveness is easily attained for our small sins. And then there are those who might wonder, does it really pertain to them? Unsure of their standing before God. Am I in or out this week? This mentality can consist of, I can, I can try to do better. I can be a better person, maybe earn some extra points and get back in good standing. But that sounds more like living by the law, which demands perfection and has no room for grace and forgiveness. Jesus offers hope to the broken, to those who recognize their inability to keep God's law, and to those who are frustrated with their failings. Just think back to Paul in chapter 7. In her book, From Fear to Freedom, Rosemary Miller says, Why would he want my heart? It is often divided, going astray, centered on self, demanding, cold, and proud. But he does. The shepherd died to make us right with God by shedding his blood to make our hearts clean. And she goes on, and he sent the spirit to write his words on my heart. And one theologian states, we are not on a performance treadmill trying to gain God's eternal acceptance. It is already a done deal. The following words of the Welsh preacher Martin Lord-Jones show how many of our difficulties are spiritual-based. He said most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth in this uh, verse of Romans 8.1. On the one hand, we feel far more guilt unworthiness and pain than we should. From this may come obsession to prove ourselves, <clears throat> a great sensitivity to criticism, defensiveness, a lack of confidence in relationships, a lack of confidence and joy in prayer and worship, and much more. On the other hand, he goes on, we will have far less motivation to live a holy life. Christians who don't understand no condemnation only obey out of fear and duty. Not nearly as powerful a motivation as love and gratitude. So how are we to be sure we are not condemned? How can we be set free? The phrase for those who are in Christ Jesus is the key. It is at that moment we believe our rebirth our regeneration, when we see Christ as a beautiful Savior and receive him as our substitute punishment and our substitute perfection. All of God's wrath, all the condemnation we deserve was poured out on Jesus. The moment we see, by grace, this treasure 
and receive him in this way, his death counts as our death, his condemnation as ours. John Piper states the crucial word in Romans 8.1 is now. The implication is there was once condemnation over us and now there is not. We know not a single human being is righteous by nature, but God looked upon us differently in the moment of our regeneration and faith and union with Christ. And that union is the meaning of in Christ in verse one. It's the personal connection, the personal relationship that we are privileged to have by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we begin with the power of the Holy Spirit. The first half of Romans is all about life in the spirit. It was only mentioned maybe seven or less times in chapters one through seven, and now I think it's over 20. And we see the Holy Spirit's work in our life as a Christian, which is the only way we as believers can live out the life to which God has called us. No one can live the Christian life in their own strength. In today's verses, we learn how to live and walk in the Spirit. One commentator remarked, these words are not just tired Christian jargon. They contain the answer. So what is walking in the Spirit? It is how we live or behave. We need to be intentional, aware of our weaknesses. We need to know ways to yield or surrender our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit. If we consciously rely on the Holy Spirit, then we will become aware of ways to do it more often, daily basis. And I often wonder how different things would be if we actually utilize the power available to us. Think about it. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. Isn't that the opposite of doing it in your own strength? As I was preparing and reading for this study, I realized I could easily fall into the category of a longtime Christian who may forget the initial sheer wonder and joy of a new identity in Christ, the transformation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. How sad to lose something so vital and important for everyday living. If I don't spend time with my Savior, In his word, listen to the nudging of the Holy Spirit. The ills of the world around me could easily draw me away. And it does. There are days when it does. But life in the spirit means you are drawn back. Spirit can draw you back or you know you have the spirit and you're nudged and you go back. As we look at the theme of the Holy Spirit in this passage, I'm going to borrow from Tim Keller, who speaks of three functions of the Holy Spirit, and each one will help us in our walk. The first is the Spirit liberates or generates us by dwelling in us and making our spirit alive, our human spirit alive. Verses two to four explain the why we are no longer condemned. It is because you belong to Christ. And the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the sin, the power of sin, that leads to death. Now, we know Jesus fulfilled the law requirements for us, but as we live our lives as Christians, we still have the requirement to live according to the Ten Commandments. But it's not on our own. 
It's as we walk according to the Spirit. Someone said, without the Holy Spirit, we are like a paraplegic. But with the Holy Spirit, we could win the gold medal. So why don't we? Unbelief? Deep down, do we really believe this mysterious, hard-to-comprehend spiritual aspect of the Christian faith that was promised to us by Jesus? Or do we just forget the power within us and act independently by our own strength? As we read in chapter 7, Paul does the evil he doesn't want to do, doesn't do the good he wants to do. That, that's us, sisters, without the Spirit. We have life in the Spirit because the Spirit of God actually lives in us. I found it interesting, the Greek word for lives is a word used for dwelling place, household, or home, used in Scripture. And I thought, how like God to say, I'm making my home in you. I'm setting up households. And we see this in verses 9 and 11, where he dwells. Paul wants to impress the fact that we are not controlled by our sinful nature. We are controlled by the Spirit, since the Spirit dwells in us, lives in us as would a welcome guest in our home. Can you imagine having a house guest, welcoming, welcoming them, showing them around, showing them where they're going to stay, offering them whatever they needed, and then just ignoring them? until it was convenient for you. You'd find them sitting and waiting for you, and, you know, after all, they told you how much they loved you. You agree, but you say, you know, I'm busy. I, I have a lot going on. I, I'll make time soon. We'll, we'll sit and we'll talk. Sisters, the house guest we have is part of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Listen to how the three persons of the Trinity are involved in our humble lives. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We see the Father and the Son and the Spirit all in that one verse. So this is about where I was convinced of my developed casual attitude about this gift. Being in this passage has definitely renewed my awareness and appreciation of the meaning of being spirit-filled and the power available. And sisters, we are all spirit-filled. There are times when we might use that term to define certain people, certain churches. We're spirit-filled. We have the spirit in us. Keller describes the second job of the Holy Spirit. It is to sanctify us by putting to death our misdeeds or sinful actions and destroying our motivation for sin. We may or may not be aware of what we need to put to death, whether it is pride, greed, gossip, pessimism, destructive speech, harbored hatred or bitterness. It is the action are relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to put these struggles to death that will keep us living in the Spirit and not on our flesh. This is mainly done by changing our mindset 
as we see in verses 5 through 8. The overcoming of sin in our lives begins in our minds. And victory over sin is only ever the result of having the mind set on the spirit. A mindset on the spirit is listening to, trusting in, and following the spirit of Christ. Our mindset makes all the difference in our daily living. Tim Keller explains verse 5 this way. Whatever you have set your mind on shapes your lifestyle and your character. What does it mean to set the mind on? He goes on. It has a stronger meaning than simply to think about. It means to focus intently on something, to be totally captured by something. Sisters, our lives are shaped by what preoccupies our minds. We either conduct our lives in a way of conformity to the sinful nature or to the spirit. So here are a few questions to consider. Do we lean toward the values of the world to fit in or blend in? Or do we strive to live as authentic Christians in this world with a conviction of who we are in Christ? To live with integrity and love for those around us. Do we feed our minds with spiritual food or with things that are a waste of time? And do we fall into the same patterns of one-way prayer without much listening? Keller quoted an Archbishop of Canterbury who once said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Now there's something to consider. Do we even have times of solitude? Moms with little ones are probably chuckling. I know. But even when those times come, what is our go-to? What we fill our minds with will affect how we behave and conduct our lives. The more we expose our mind to the ungodly values around us, the more we weaken our mindset of following the Lord. Many of the world's values are anti-God, anti-church, faith, anything related. The more time spent there, and we all know our weaknesses, don't we? the more tendency to approach life in the flesh rather than in the spirit. We might become aware of jealousy or envy creeping in or a dissatisfaction with our lives in general. Beware of these signs, sisters. A mindset on the spirit of life within us will bring peace, security, and contentment. We see two mindsets described, one without Christ and the other with Christ, with most attention to the non-Christian mindset. In verses seven and eight, Paul is very concise in defining believers and unbelievers. He proceeds to spell out the implications and results of a life given over to the sinful nature. They cannot please God. They are hostile to God and don't want to follow God's law. They ignore God. Our natural state without the spirit cannot please God. It is because our natural state is all about itself. It is self-centered and deep down wants to be its own God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. 
but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are only discerned by the Spirit, through the Spirit. It's a good exercise to think back and realize that was us before the Spirit opened our eyes. And when I think back to that time in my life, I shudder at the arrogance that I remember I had. But it will help us better understand unbelievers. They cannot understand the things of God without being in the Spirit. Do you ever think about people you know who are not believers but live a good life, a decent life, do good things, and think, why doesn't this matter? Why doesn't that count? Why does Paul say in Romans 3, no one does good, not even one? It is because our actions must be done with a view or purpose to glorify God, not ourselves. Those without the Spirit are looking out for themselves to be credited, to be praised, or to be shown recognition in one way or another. And we may even find ourselves desiring the same things during seasons of doubt and unbelief. Yet being attuned to the Spirit will draw us back to the things desired by God. Now moving on to the third job of the Spirit, which is assurance, we see assurance of future resurrection, re resurrection of life, and the assurance we are God's children. We belong to him, and he gives us abundant life now as we live in his spirit and eternal life with him when this life is over. This is all covered in verses 9 through 17. In these verses, Paul continues to contrast the physical side of our struggle with sin with the intervention of the Holy Spirit. The first part of verse 9 is the essential mark of a Christian. But the last part is a sad declaration, showing no gray area between those who have the Spirit of Christ and those who do not, stating they do not belong to Christ. The verses that follow go on to assure those who are in Christ have the spirit and the life promised because of righteousness in the spirit and eternal life in the resurrection. Paul's purpose in mentioning the resurrection at this point is to highlight that the same spirit that will raise all believers from the dead for eternal life is available to us now to give us life abundantly now. There is a repetition in Romans, isn't there? The messages are repeated over and over, but I think God really wants us to get it. He wants us to have abundant life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And considering that, we can ask ourselves, is my present life shaped by the hope of the resurrection? Meaning, am I living with an eternal perspective? prioritizing what I deem important or what God deems important. Piper asks, if we take a hard look at our present lives, do we make decisions based on gain in this world or gain in the next? Do we take risks for love's sake that can only be explained as wise if there is a resurrection? I wonder what would those decisions and risks look like in each of our lives? 
Is the spirit nudging? But what's keeping us back? Do we pray big prayers? Or is unbelief and fear in the way? Do we look honestly at wanting to glorify God or glorify ourselves? When we live less for ourselves and more for Christ, we depend on the spirit in us to help put to death our sinful nature. Hughes puts it this way, the spirit does not do his work apart from our response. Did you see the emphasis in verse 13? You need to put sin to death. Paul puts the responsibility squarely on our shoulders. But at the same time, he makes it clear we can only do it through the Spirit. So we don't sit back and say, all right, Spirit, you do it. It's our action working with the Spirit, which is, is the way that we can um, be sanctified. The Greek word used here for put to death is violent a ruthless and full-hearted resistance to sinful practice, attitudes, and behaviors that are wrong. Killing isn't merely cutting off of branches, but a striking at the root. For example, we need to do more than just recognize our sin of impatience or anger, but we, we need to seek to know how this branch of sin is connected to the root of pride. And from there, we can get to work chopping away, a lifelong process. Another way the Spirit offers assurance we see in verses 14 through 17 is adoption or sonship, the assurance we are God's children. Adoption was more a customary legal procedure in Roman society than it was in Hebrew or Eastern culture. So Paul, as a Roman citizen, would have been familiar with it. Adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. He would then adopt someone as an heir. It could be a child or an adult. The moment adoption occurred, several things were immediately true of this new son. First, his old debts and legal obligations were paid. Second, he got a new name and was instantly heir of all the father had. Third, his new father became instantly liable for all his actions, his debts, any crimes. But fourth, the new son also had obligations to honor and praise the father. Do we understand this was true for us the moment we became Christians? We not only had God's forgiveness, we became his child. Our status was set as his child. Jesus knew his audience, so the reference would have had deep meaning for them at the time, and now for us. We were slaves and orphans before even knowing God, even just intellectually or theologically, but not as father. Because we have the spirit, we can cry out, Abba, Father. And that cry out has deep emotional meaning. It's been noted that Abba is not only a term of intimacy, but also one of an obedient heart as to the Father. In Mark 14, we see Jesus in Gethsemane praying to his Father in an experience of pain, 
but also with an expression of willingness to obey his father. Many Christians live with the knowledge of this status, but not the experience of feeling it. In verse 15, crying out, Abba, Father, Father is a profound passion and feeling, intimacy and prayer. It's the work of the spirit, the spirit of sonship, a sense of assurance. We don't have to worry about being good enough. It changes our understanding of our own significance. We don't have to doubt the love of God. It's not conditional, and it's the job of the Spirit to assure us. If you ever question, does God really love me? Think about the fact he adopted you. Those of you who have gone through the adoption process know the rigors and the emotional toll. But unadoption wasn't a thought when it was all through, was it? You took that step out of love and consideration for that child who was your own from the day the legal papers were signed. Verse 17 tells us if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We, we are like that adopted heir that got the lion's share of wealth from his father. And that's us. We are all, all heirs of God's glory. All that God has to offer is ours. This is quite an amazing assurance of our future. So in closing, here's a quote from Derek Thomas. Let's not default to the mind's natural setting. Let's go back to where we began the spiritual journey of life to when grace was really amazing. And we had a heart filled with wonder, praise, and adoration. Sisters, we have the power within us. Let's live like we do. Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your words for this passage, for, for your spirit, Father. Thank you for the fact that you took the punishment for us. Lord, help us to rejoice. Help us to have joy. Help us to know that your spirit is with us. And in daily life, we can live abundantly because of that. Help us to tap into it every single day, Lord, every hour that we need it. You are our comforter. You are our helper. You are our strength. And Lord, we just pray whatever you will for our lives, we would be in tune with it and we would know we can do it because of your spirit in us. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for all the women now as they go forward that you would be with them and touch their hearts in the ways they need it. Pray in this, in your holy name, amen.